morning, I'd like to invite you to open it to the book of 1 Corinthians. As you know, we have been uh, coming through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I told you last week, um, as we have every book of the Bible, we've been focusing on uh, how Christ is portrayed in each book of the Bible. And we know now that in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as Christ our Lord. And we have made mention to it several times that the church at Corinth has some, have some uh, tremendous spiritual issues. And uh, Paul is writing this letter to them to, to deal with them on these issues. He wants this church, as we've seen last couple of weeks, to be a, a good church, a, a fruitful church, a church that brings honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this stage of the game, they are, they are far from that. And so uh, we have been uh, coming through it, and it's, it's obvious at this stage of the game, just in the last couple of weeks, that we see the reason why they're not the functional church that they should be. Uh, the obvious reason is that they quit growing spiritually. Uh, they either never grew spiritually or they just quit growing spiritually. We see that phenomena all the way through. Uh, uh, the Bible. We have been studying in the Old Testament, uh, finishing up those books, and we just look at Zechariah and then Haggai the week before that on Thursday night, uh, giving you the outlines of that, and I showed you there again. That's the same problem that we saw in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. God sends them back in 70 AD, uh, uh, excuse me, sends them back uh, 70 years after 606 B.C., and about 520, and they begin to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And we know now from our enough studies in the Bible that that's a, that was the central thing for the nation of Israel. But then they lost interest. And some 12 years later, God sends them Haggai, then Zechariah, and both of those prophets zero in on the same issue. Why have you stopped building the temple that God has given you to build? And they were falling again back in disarray, which always happens when we we break down and we quit growing spiritually. This is what's happened to the church at Corinth. This is what happens to churches today. And I told you how that the church at Corinth uh, is nothing more than a mirrored image of what churches are like today who have stopped growing spiritually. And they have lost their way on basically all the major issues of the Bible. And uh, for us, you know, the book is a gold mine because when he's dealing with these issues, when he's dealing with the problems they have, uh, by God's intention, it really gives us the insight of knowing how to sidestep uh, the problem. You know, the Bible, uh, you know, I, I, I sign people's Bibles all the time, and I sign just a few variations of things in it. But one of the things I'll put in sometimes is, is this Bible, uh, uh, this Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this Bible. And that's a basic little thing, but it's true. And that's what happens in the church at Corinth. They got, they got back into the things of the world, and uh, the Bible went, and they lost their spiritual way, much like, much like God's people and churches do today. For us, it's an incredible uh, lesson on how to sidestep, how that those things should never happen to us. And uh, there's a lot of good things that happen to you by coming to this church, but let me tell you one major bad thing that happens to you from coming to this church. Now, you're all told at various times of various people that a lot of terrible things will happen if you come to this church. Well, I guarantee you, I'll tell you one thing that is, is a danger for you being in this church, the judgment seat of Christ. You will not stand there and say, nobody ever told me. 
You will not stand there and say, oops, I didn't know. You will not stand there and say, well, you know what? I just, we had a lame mouth preacher that just never really got into anything and I just never, no, 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 no. The, the greatest danger for you in this church is sitting here week after week after week and not doing what the Bible says to do. This was the problem at the church of Corinth. Hence the, the title, uh, Christ being portrayed is Christ our Lord. And I told you in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, one of the great principles in the Bible. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? This is the church of Corinth. This is the modern 20th century church. And uh, this is why that, uh, you know, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is such a valuable book to us. And it shows us how to sidestep the issues, and it really prepares you and for me uh, what we really need to prepare in ourselves to do what God has called us to do. Now, in chapter 7, and this is a major chapter here, in chapter 7, we have laid out for us the New Testament teachings uh, for the church on three major issues. And uh, the first issue he addresses is marriage. The second issue he addresses is divorce. And the third issue he addresses is remarriage. Now, obviously, these are pretty serious issues within the church at Corinth. Even though we don't get a lot of dialogue, and we don't know exactly what the problem was because he really doesn't get into it in detail. He spends all of his time uh, laying it out, fortunate for us. But he does say in verse 1, and this is what leads us to know for sure that they've got some spiritual issues. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. He doesn't really tell us what those things were, but what he does do then after verse 1, he spends the next 40 verses, 40 verses in this chapter, dealing with the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So it must have been a major issue uh, that he took that much time to write about it. And uh, his answer back to them, these 40 verses, it sets up for us how a New Testament church should deal, and even more important, I think, understand these issues. For what you have in chapter 7 are the rules of conduct, very, very, very clearly laid out on what you're to do and how to handle every situation that you're going to come across in this issue. Now, I'm going to take whatever time it takes in this chapter. And uh, we're not even going to get into the chapter today. This is going to be an introduction, but I think you have to have an introduction to understand what we're going to deal with. Because I, I want you to, and I want to take whatever time it takes on this chapter, uh, for I think that where many of you are at with the Bible and where you want to be with the Bible understanding all of this will help you not only yourself, but it'll, it'll help you help other people. Now, we've talked about it many, many times. God wants you to be a prepared servant. God wants to put you in places where people need to hear the truth that they need to hear. The great example of that in the Bible is obviously Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is not new to you. I've told you this many, many times how that here you have a prepared sinner, an Ethiopian eunuch that needs to be saved. He needs to hear the truth. God did the work that he needed to do by getting that man a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures. Isaiah 53 is what he has. And here's this man, prepared sinner. God's Spirit has obviously dealt with him in his heart. He's given him the Word of God, which you can't understand, by the way. 
And then he's isolated him from all the things in this world, and he's on the backside of the desert simply sitting there trying to figure this thing out. And then God adds the final equation. He has the prepared servant, in a sinner in his place. Now what God needs is a prepared servant. And we find in a man by the name of Philip, one of the first deacons in the Bible, a man that God chose to take out of a great revival in Samaria and send him to the backside of the desert, which sets up for us a model for you and for me. You know, there's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't talk to me or call me and tell me about or ask advice on some situation that they uh, were put in at work. Christy Christensen last night at the ball game, she was telling me about the aspect of, of uh, where she works. She's a nurse. And uh, she was talking to me about uh, uh, that they had uh, somebody there that was believed in speaking in tongues. And they, they all the nurses were in a, in a little nurse cubicle, you know, talking about it and giving their various opinions about it. And, and she got to go in there and, and lay out for them from the Bible what tongues were and put it into a context for them. And I'm telling you, it happens all the time. I talked to Roy this week. And Roy, you know, Roy and Rob, uh, they, they travel through many states doing their, their business and, and doing what they do and keeping up the maintenance things of businesses. And he asked me, he said, you know what, you would not believe. Uh, and he, Rob, he said, you got this too. Where's Rob? He said, you too. You wouldn't believe the opportunities you guys get to talk to people that people talk to you. And we talked about it. I put some packets together back there that, of how to study the Bible, little Bible things. I want you guys to take with you when you go out. Because people are, God wants to put you in places where you are his shining light. There's people in your world where you work in your, how many times I've heard some of you tell me about people at school that you get a, teachers that you get a chance to talk to. You work your way into, a, into your teacher's class and you try to help them, uh, you know, with the kids and the teacher appreciates it and she sees something different in you. The next thing she does is she spills her guts about her bad marriage or a bad relationship or problems that she's having. God wants you to be a prepared servant. God wants to be able to drop you in any place he needs to for you to give people what they need. And I'll tell you, Every culture has its problems. And, uh, you know, if you go down to places in Central America, poverty, Haiti, poverty, poverty is, is just everywhere. And those people, yes, they need Jesus. Certainly they do. There's no question about that. But they also need food. They also need clothes. There's places in this world where they need medicine. There's places in this world where they need all kinds of things along with the Lord Jesus Christ. And really the key to penetrating those cultures where you get in to be able to do something in their world is to meet that physical need and then allow God to make that like a conduit by which you can get them a Jesus Christ. Well, America's got its own special brand of problems. And it's not food, obviously. No, no. America's number one problem is America's an insane asylum run by the inmates. America is busted families, busted homes, busted relationships, busted marriages, and basically like the book of Judges, where God was supreme for so many years, but now no king and every man doing what's right in his own eyes. Now, that's a bad state of affairs for us to be in in the country. But on the other side, it makes it a ripe situation for, for being used of the Lord. And I can honestly say this today without knowing really anything about any of you. 
But I know one thing about every one of you that may or may not be true, but God wants to be true. He wants you to become a prepared servant. He wants you to learn everything you can and gain everything you get and put it all together that God, up through your world, can put you in any scenario where somebody will come and talk to you about their situation in life and you have the light and the answers that they need. And of course, uh, you know, I was taught many, many years ago the first thing a pastor does is with his people is try to reproduce what he has with those people. That's a scary thought, 200 Bob Alexanders running around town. But just simply in the sense of you having Bible truth and having the burden, the vision to be able to go out and, and, and God will put them into your life. You don't have to go looking for an opportunity to minister today. Philip didn't go looking for it. When you walk with the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and you are in one, he's got one direction for your life, and that is for him to put you in the situations where you can be used of God like Philip was with that Ethiopian eunuch. And I think that this is the great, I think this is the great aspect. The real missionary endeavor of our church is you. You're a missionary. Your mission field is your neighborhood. Your mission field is where you work. Your mission field is the school your kids go to. Your mission field is, is, is where the people that God puts in your life, that if you're doing what needs to be done in your own personal life, God will put the people in your life that you have, that have had disasters or going through some disaster. Broken marriages, bastard relationships are the number one issue people have today that leads to all kinds of extenuating circumstances. Now, I taught you in ministry before that uh, for me, uh, in my own personal world, uh, I understand things better when I get the perspective. I think perspective is really important. And I know from just my own life of living on this planet that there's usually, there's, there's usually, it takes three things to get the right perspective on something. I think people make too many rash decisions. I think pastors make too many rash decisions without, without getting all of these three together. And I've told you before that the basic three aspects of the dimensions of the ministry is look behind, look around, and look ahead. You got to see what's been for you to know where you're at. And don't tell me you know where you're going when you don't know where you've been and you don't know where you're at. But that's the way we operate today. And I think with this particular study in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for you to be valuable in helping people, because this chapter is the great chapter. It is the toolbox. In 35, 40 years of ministry, it is the bedrock where you do your work from in dealing with people with bad marriages or concept of marriage or relationships or divorce. It has to form the basis, the foundation. There's many, many principles in here that uh, it lays itself out. In fact, in the chapter, there is 20 dynamo principles that you operate by and then about 50 sub-principles that tie into those. But I think that for you to understand it, Understand what you're up against today, the gravity of it, the seriousness of it, how it infects and impacts almost everything in our society. I think you need to understand the historical perspective. You know, I, I was born in 1950. And I, can, I remember back in those days, as some of you were born back then, we have a, a number of people in our church that can re- probably can remember some of the same things that I'm going to talk about today. But this is for a historical perspective. Because I think you've got to look behind 
before you can look around. I think you've got to look behind and understand it before you can look around and look ahead. And I think for you to be effective in God wanting you to put you into this scenario, you have to understand what you're dealing with and where it came from. You know, when I grew up in the 1950s, people never got divorced. And uh, it, they just didn't. Movie stars got divorced. I remember, I remember that two of the, great, uh, two of the greatest uh, fornicating harlots on planet Earth when I was growing up was Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor. Marilyn Monroe killed herself back uh, right after or the or CIA killed her. Somebody killed her. Anyway, <clears throat> she, she died of an overdose of drugs, sleeping pills. And uh, Liz Taylor just died here a couple of, about a month ago. Uh, there, so. and, and I remember my mom was into those, you know, back then, you know, the photo play magazines about the movie stars and all of that. And the great scandal. Well, Elizabeth Taylor was married five times. And they would critique every one of her. She was married to some guy named Todd who was killed in a plane crash. She was married to Joe DiMaggio, a great ball player. But in a great love affair, torrid love affair, her love of her life was Richard Burton. And she went through four or five marriages. I mean, uh, she, uh, she, you know, and finally she was married to Richard for quite a long time, and then they got a divorce. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, and that was scandalous back then. I mean, it was something that you read about in the tabloids. I mean, uh, it, you know, they got weird stuff. You know, it's so commonplace today that when you go to the shopping center today, when in the 50s it was, Liz Taylor marries for the fourth time. If you put up on a newsstand today, so-and-so married for the fourth time, nobody even buy it. No, you got to get Britney Spears has sex with aliens. That, that, you buy that, you see. <laughs> You, you got to get way off the wall today. You're laughing, but boy, does that say where we're at today. Common people just didn't do it. It was something that the rich and famous did. Young couples got married, and they stayed married. Older couples, they had their issues, but they stayed and worked them out. Or they didn't work them out. But divorce, what I'm saying is divorce was not an option. And now today, well, really, uh, the statistics here uh, are from the 1980s. That's 35-plus years ago. In the 19, early 1980s, the statistic, national statistics came out that half the adult population of the United States was divorced, and half of them were remarried and divorced again. I cannot even imagine what the statistics would be uh, today. I'm not even sure you can calculate them. And I want to say this, because I grew up in this era, and maybe you grew up in it too, and maybe you weren't paying attention, but, you know, uh, I, I remember these things. I remember that in the early 70s, when everything started to fall apart, and the fabric of society began to crack, and now the marriages had begun to really, uh, an avalanche had taken place. Nothing made the church, nothing made churches look at themselves more than this avalanche of broken marriages uh, that the church had to face because there was no sweeping under the carpet. It wasn't no longer relegated to movie stars. Now it was the common ordinary people that their marriages were absolutely falling apart. And uh, nothing got swept under the rug more than the issue of divorce or maybe I should say nothing got dealt with in much more of a terrible way. Churches and pastors at this point in time, they didn't have the ability to even deal with it. Many big-time churches saw their deacons, their, their, their Sunday school teachers, and many pastors themselves lost their marriages as our whole society back in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s. But it started at the, in the 70s, and it began to crack. 
And everything began to, the fabric of the family began to unravel and ripped up as marriage after marriage after marriage failed. It became an epidemic. And, uh, and let me say this. This is why you need to know these things to understand the cause and effect. And every problem you're going to deal with people in, and I want to teach this to you today like we're in a classroom setting. I want to teach it to you today as, as in something that, that for you to learn how to deal with this. So I'm going to stop from time to time and, and emphasize a point. The first point I want to emphasize is in dealing with people's problems, you have to understand a basic format. It's simply called cause and effect. Cause and effect. For everything in life, there is a cause, the reason why they do it, and then there is a fe- an effect, the, the, the circumstances that come out of the cause, you see. And, and, and this, is, this is fundamental. You know, I just don't want to preach a sermon to you on divorce, remarriage, and today. That's not my goal. Not my goal at all. My goal is to help take the ones who are at that point where you really are being used of God. And this is not something that when you're at work someplace and, uh, you know, uh, somebody asks you and it starts pouring out, you don't sit them down and, and give them this message. This stuff is for you. This stuff forms your concept. This stuff forms your understanding of the cause. You'll never deal with the effect of anything until you understand the cause of something. That's why the first time you went into your house with your head all busted up or your knee all skinned up, what did your mother say? Before they put any iodine on it, took you to any hospital, what did they ask you? What did you do? Cause. See? Cause is number one. You won't affect anything without understanding the cause. This is what I'm trying to give you today. I'm trying to show you historically how this thing became about so we can better deal with it as we have to help people. And that's what we're about. I, I don't, I, 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 you know, my position on, on these things, or, you, or I don't care what you've done in life. I really don't. Well, what you've done in the past, what you did yesterday doesn't really affect me, doesn't affect any way I look at you. I'm only interested in where you're at today and where you want to go from here. If you don't want to change the way you are, I still love you, you're a nice person, but I can't help you. You know, my whole world revolves around cause and effect with the Bible and Bible principles. You put those into your life, there isn't any problem you can't fix in life. You don't put those in your life, there isn't any problem going to get fixed in your life. It's just that simple. Now, first of all, the real issue became here, and this is not the order they happened in, but I want to talk about this first because I want you to see this. Uh, the, the, the first thing that happened was a country, the United States of America, completely departing from the Word of God. Now, there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in 1950, when I was born, up to the last part of the 20th century and into 2012, the first part of the 21st century, uh, we saw the great the effects of the great apostasy of the Laodicean church. And I, I'm not going to take time to go into all of that. You've been around here. You know exactly from our chart and everything we've talked about. But I will say this. There's a great principle in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and it simply says in that particular thing that if the salt has lost its savor, you know, Christianity and the Bible are likened to salt in the Bible. And salt in the Bible is always a preservative. When you salt things, you preserve them. 
And in that great passage there, the great concept that if the salt has lost its savor, obviously what happens is the thing begins to decay and begin to rot. And what we began to see in 1950 was the cause and the effect of 50 years from 1900 up to 1950 of this country losing its salt, the Word of God. And our country had been preserved almost 200 years by the Word of God. Our value system. You know, I know most of you, I know mo- I, last week I was trying to put some oomph into the message and a little humor, and I forget what I asked Zach about. Zach, why didn't you be the Oklahoma bomber? And then the answer back was, because I wasn't born yet. You know, I slapped him afterwards for that. But, but the truth of the matter is, most of you, I forget you were not here. You didn't get firsthand. Us older people, we know. Okay, we've been around a little bit. That's why you got to listen to us. Okay? Your parents know. That's why you got to listen to them. We've seen some things that you didn't see. And, you know, I, I, most kids today think that manual labor is the president of Mexico. They have no idea, you know, how, how it fits into it, you know. And it's, it's a sad state of affairs. And yet... This country had been preserved. You see, you grow up in a world where mixed marriages, when I say mixed marriages in the sense of of same-sex marriages, same-sex marriages are almost an accepted thing of the day. In our world growing up in the 50s, it was not. It was not. Same-sex marriages were unheard of. Homosexuality was unheard of. Lesbianism, it's a common word today, was unheard of. Those things happened, yes, they happened, but they were such a small part of society. You know, we have the big issue on abortions today. Let me tell you something. In the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, there weren't any abortions. Not on the scale today. I'm not saying people didn't do it, but it's like going out and buying chewing gum today. It's like going out and buying a car It's like going out and buying clothes. Everybody does it. And it shows you the way the society has changed, and it's changed, and now the things that were absolutely against everything in our value system back then, commonplace today. And the problem is that you young kids don't know that. And you've you've lost that or never had the sense of that kind of value system. I feel sorry for you. I don't like when I was born... I would have rather been born in the middle of it all in the 17th century or the 18th, 19th century where you were really tearing it up. I'm about as out of place in 2012 as I know how to be. I, this, nothing makes me happy other than the book and the few friends that I have in my life and people in the church here and what God's given me. But what in this world, what in this world makes anything happy? I remember when I was growing up, you know who did drugs when I was growing up? A few goofball people in churches. It wasn't the mainstream. They were football players. They were basketball players. The guys that were drugs, they were a very small group, and they were the outcast. Now, if you don't do drugs, you're the outcast. I remember in the 30s, Gene Krupa. I wasn't born then, but I remember Gene Krupa. You know what Gene Krupa, who he was? He was a drummer, very good drummer. And Gene Krupa played with some of the big bands back then. And Gene Krupa came to the point where he got messed up on heroin? No. 
Meth, they didn't have to learn, hadn't had the recipe for it back then. <laughs> he got into marijuana. Now, marijuana, there's a big debate about us legalizing marijuana today. But back in there, when he got on marijuana, and all they found was two cigarettes on him, two marijuana cigarettes. They put him in jail. He bonded out. And you know what? Not one band would touch him. One band finally did take him, put him on, and brought him up, and the kid stopped dancing and booed him off the stage. Now, <laughs> how about last night, huh? Down at the Rock Fest, you could get high from just standing across the street. <laughs> that cloud over the place was not bug spray to keep the mosquitoes down. The mosquitoes were not flying straight last night. <laughs> Q worked it. He's a Kansas City cop. He worked it. And that's, that's where it's at today. You see? That's, that's how it's changed. That's how it's changed. I mean, when I grew up, compare. Ozzy and Harriet? <laughs> Sex in the City. June Cleaver? Desperate housewife. You're getting my point? Now, the tragedy is you don't know who June Cleaver is. She's probably your mother. I mean, it's just that way. I mean, back then we had Lawrence Welk. Now we got American Idol. Oh, movies. There was no sex in movies. Why, it was against the law for even to show in a bedroom scene the man and a woman fully clothed be in the same bed. They have their own little bed, bungalow bed. I mean, how about the Western? How do you think Brokeback Mountain would have worked in 1960? <laughs> you get my point here? We got some issues, man. I'm telling you. Back then, the only thing the cowboy ever kissed was his horse. You got to watch that kind of stuff today. Think about that for a while. It'll come and get you. When I was in grade school, every, every Easter and every Christmas... There was a preacher came in and preached salvation about Christ. That's against the law now. They've changed everything about it. You don't even know that. They've changed everything about it. Our society has completely lost its value system in everything. And, and unfortunately, most of you young people are victims of that. Some of you older people are victims of forgetting that or never knowing it to begin with. Back in my day in schools, they passed out Bibles. Now they pass out condoms. Authority was, uh, was taught and respected. I mean, remember happy days? Everybody was a nice, clean-cut kid except one guy. And that was the Fonz. The Fonz was cool. He wore a leather jacket, white T-shirt. Married the 50s, wrote his cigarette pack up in his short sleeve T-shirt. He was the oddball, tough guy in a world that was filled with young kids. There were good, wholesome kids. That's the way it was. That's the way it was. 
This country was still caught, you see, in the ebb tide of the great Philadelphian church. But as the country and the world in general moved away from the salt preserving of the Word of God, the three institutions that God ordained and put into play became broken and began to unravel. And I, and I, I want to be clear on this. I, I, I want you to be able to see the cause and the effect. I think it's very, very, very important. And again, this is a lecture this morning. I'm not proposing to preach this to you. I'm lecturing this to you, prospective Phillips out there. Now, in the Bible, the Bible has a structure to it. And in that Bible structure, God ordained three institutions. Now, the first thing I want to do in giving you these three institutions is show you them as they appeared in the Bible. I'm going to show you their appearance. Now, the first one was in Genesis chapter 2. And the first institution that God ordained was marriage and from that family. But the first marriage in the Bible is found with Adam and Eve. And that first marriage in the Bible sets up the model. That's why when you get married, usually the pastor reads a passage out of Ephesians chapter 5, deals with verse 22 through 33 over there, and it has to do with what was taking place back in Genesis. That's your first marriage in the Bible. That marriage was an institution that God set up. Somebody says, is marriage a good thing? If you like institutions, yes, it's a great thing. <laughs> the second thing was he established was in Genesis chapter 10. That's civil government. You see, this is why Romans chapter 13 says that you have to follow and obey the laws of the government. God had to enact a structure. And in that structure, God put together a cohesiveness, uh, whether they're saved or lost, it doesn't make any difference. God is the author. God, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And we've seen down through the Bible. That's why I told you in the Old Testament that the Old Testament is about nations. That's why in the Old Testament, the all that God does, all that God does in the Old Testament revolves around one nation. You know Why? Because that nation, the nation of Israel, and that concept of, 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 of nations was, and government was established in Genesis chapter 10. That's the second institution. The third institution, then, is the New Testament local church. We know now from our study in Acts all about that. We know that it comes into play in the book of Acts, and we see how the thing all the way lays it down. Now, that's the order of their appearance. Now, let me give you the order of their disappearance. Because here comes the cause and effect. Here comes the deal. The first thing that went was the church. When the church lost its Bible, Christianity then lost its salt. The only thing that preserves any nation is the people and the Bible that they have and what they believe about it. This is why our founding fathers, even though many of them were unsaved people, they had a reverence for God and the Word of God. They knew about eternal judgment. They knew about heaven. They knew about hell. They believed it. There was none of this goofy stuff that goes on today. And they completely understood what the Bible was, who God was, and what the impending judgment and disasters coming their way was. They just rolled the dice. But they had a fear for God. There is no fear for God today. 
And by the way, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about God's people. There is no fear of God in God's people's lives today. Why do you think the world would, would fear him? God's people live their lives, do what they want to do, fornicate with who they want to fornicate with, do the drugs, do the scene, do the whole thing, have no fear of God's retribution whatsoever, and then we scratch our head and say, wonder why the world the way it is. Because the salt has lost its savor. And you and I are the salt. You and I are the salt. When the church failed, marriages failed. Because you cannot separate church and marriage. We'll see that in just a little bit. When the churches went, they lost the word of God. It was only a matter of time before the families went. You see, families and marriages are the key because churches are made up of married people and single people and married up with, made up of families. So when the churches go, obviously the marriages and the family is going to go. And then when the marriages and the families are go, the third in institution disappears, that's the government. And that's why our country is in the shape that it's in. Our country today is being led by the people that back, you weren't even born yet, back in the 50s and the 60s were the radical left-wing hippies out there, and now they're in office in Washington. And uh, it all goes back, and I can't even impress upon you the, the, absolute, the absolute catastrophe the judgment seat of Christ is going to be for preachers in this country who can blame it on all the Democrats all you want, can blame it on the liberals, can blame it on the communists. That Bible said, Jesus said, that we are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its savor, and that's what happened. And we began to see how that thing began to erode. When marriages and families started to fail, <coughs> and this epidemic of divorce <coughs> through the 70s and the 80s began to overflow, and just like a flood, the church was already departed and gone from the biblical aspect of things. They did not have the means, nor did they have the resources to deal with the issues. Now, let me tell you what they did. Now, I didn't get this out of a book. I lived through this. Some of you probably lived through this, too. <clears throat> some of you have been with me for now on to 30-some years now, and you've seen these things because we've been in a lot of the same scenarios together. But when marriages and families started to fail in the 70s and the 80s, <clears throat> this is what the church did. What they did really was much more worse than doing nothing. Because as churches, as the church of Corinth, the churches today have lost their biblical perspective. So they took people who were already hurt and broken. They took people who already were at the weakest part of their life. And, and may I say this to you? The greatest time to be an influence in somebody's life if for a witness with Christ is not when they're at their strongest, it's when they're at the bottom of their life. And I say that because the church of Jesus Christ had, what, three or four generations of people who had hit bottom. They had no place else to look, no place else to go. They had nothing else to do. They were reaching out. And what did the church of Jesus Christ do? Well, they didn't do what the Bible says they should have done. And I'll tell you what they did do. They took these people who were already hurting, already broken, and further damaged them by putting them into a non-biblical system or structure that gave them absolutely, guaranteed, 
absolutely no chance or no hope of ever getting out of it. The standard teaching back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and even today in many, many churches is when you start to deal with marriage, divorce, and remarriage, their main text are just basically three passages. In the Old Testament, they go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. In the New Testament, they go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And this is where they, and basically Matthew 5 and 19 are based off of Deuteronomy chapter 24. But I want you to understand, you, because when you start dealing with some people who are in their 40s and maybe their 50s now, and their lives are upside down, I guarantee you in many, many cases, the reason why you need to know this instead of just sloughing it off like it's another message you're going to endure is the fact that if you're going to be a prepared ser- uh, servant, you better understand where this person is coming from before you start opening your mouth giving them advice. Look behind, look around, look ahead. Cause and effect. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it says this. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now we jump over to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause, now it's Adam and Eve, see, going back to the first marriage. And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Foreign concept today. Wherefore, because of what he just said, they are no more twain but one flesh. Therefore, God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. They say unto him, Why Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, this is where he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 24, but I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except he be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her, which is put away, committeth adultery. Now those become the two verses. And when these, these two verses in hand, the church of Jesus Christ began to deal with the, what had become now as the unpardonable sin of divorce. And by doing so, destroyed hundreds and thousands of people. These people went to church to get some answers. These church people, for the most case, the ones I've talked to, anyhow, they know they made a mistake. They know that what they were caught up in wasn't right. They wanted to do it. And they went to the place that they thought they should go, to the church of Jesus Christ. Sounds like a good move, isn't it? But what they found there was a little different. What they found there was one of the cruelest, meanest systems that I think is on the par with the Spanish Inquisition. Because now when you went to church, you were automatically branded. Churches across the country, they didn't know how to deal with it. They had no idea about the Bible. The pastor was so inept with the Word of God and had such an inability to understand the Scriptures that he couldn't figure it out. So what they did, what they all did, what they all did, well, we want you, we want you, but you're divorced. So we're going to have a special class with only divorced people. Therefore, ensuring that uh, you won't mix and mingle and taint the rest of the congregation. We'll call it a rediscovery class. We'll call it a recovery class. 
Why don't you just call it what it is? The leper class. Because that's the way they treated it. And they were told when they went into these classes that we're glad you're here. We love you. God wants you to have a successful life. Do not, under any circumstances, date anybody in this church. So they isolated them. Not only did they not know anything about the Bible, they didn't know any pastor, they didn't know anything about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. Because I don't care, you put any woman, any two, any men and women in a room and say, you can't be with these people, they'll say, okay, we'll be with these people. No, no, unless you're going to ensure in your church that you have a personal bodyguard with each person for 24-7. It happens. Love's for sale. It happens. And churches were faced with this dilemma. Oh, our churches are going to be tainted. Our kids are going to grow up with this kind of model. And oh, what are we going to do? Oh, God forbid we use the Bible and deal with it biblically. You are marked with a stigma that if you were divorced and remarried, other than if the only two references based on these passages were uh, fornication, the other part are committed fornication, or death. And if you were, if your former partner was alive and you remarried somebody else, then you get the next stigma that you're living in adultery for the rest of your life. Now, you know, that's a hard thing to put on somebody. Some pastors went so far to say that if you were divorced and remarried before you were even saved and remarried, you're still living in adultery. That's tough. That's tough. Now, if you were divorced and you stayed single, you jumped through all the hoops. You could come to church, but you could basically could do nothing. I want to work in ministry. No, you're divorced. I want to be a Sunday school teacher. Oh, no, you're divorced. I want to sing in the choir. Oh, no, we can't put you on display in public. You're a divorced person. <laughs> Think I could ever be a deacon? Woo! No way, no way, no way. How about a Sunday school superintendent? I'll just over... No, 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 no. Can I be a secretary? No, 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 no. Well, listen, I want to come to church. I want to serve God. I know I've divorced. I made a mistake. I'm trying to do the best. I'm staying single. What can I do? Well, let me think. Oh, I know what will you. You can tithe. (laughs) And in this unbiblical practice, the church of Jesus Christ destroyed, I mean destroyed, three or four generations of God's people who could have been helped, but instead were made castaways by a bunch of pious Christians. Now, that's the historical perspective. Now, I always think that, look behind, let's look around us now for a moment. Let's set a context from the Bible of God's concept of marriage. And I think this will help you uh, now that you know where it came from, and many, many people that are older folks that are into that, but the younger folks are just victims of a lawless Christianity where there is nothing, and at least you need to know what the Bible says. And I think we talk about laying down a doctrinal foundation to work from. 
as I was a young pastor many, many years ago, and I was in the midst of all of this, and I seen all of this, and I seen the goofy things that were happening. I wasn't in a position at that point to change it or do anything about it. But I made up my mind that I was going to, I was going to do what I could. And I realized very quickly that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this has been 35 plus years ago, I recognized that, that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 was my foundation from which I was going to have to work from. And I began to look through and go through those 20 principles and outline them. And I began in basically, you know, my format for dealing with people, wherever they come in, wherever they're at for the last 40 years, has been based on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll tell you why. The New Testament teachings on divorce and remarriage and marriage and those issues for the church are not found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, nor Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Certainly not found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Baptist pastors are so inept, and we're inept back then, that when they come to the Bible, they never, never, even, never even thought the fact that, that, that it was different dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles and the, Jews and the, Gentiles and the Old Testament than the body of Christ in the New Testament. I, I, honestly, folks, I don't know of a single issue in the Bible dealing with sin that is not different and dealt with differently from the Old Testament into the New Testament. I can't think of one. It's the fact that law versus grace demands that. But we're talking about a group of people that read Genesis chapter 6 and think the sons of God are born-again people. So you've got to consider the source. Well, we got kids in the elementary division are smarter than that. Put them in charge. The second thing is Matthew, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written to us directly. And this is where the background of books in the Bible come in. I got some terrible news for you, preacher. There is no Christians in Matthew. They're not first called Christians, Acts chapter 11. That's a little bit of a gap. There's no church in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul is the apostle to the church, and he comes in long after that. There's no body of Christ. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Paul reveals the body of Christ in the book of Ephesians. That's Acts chapter 18. That's 57 A.D. A little bit of a gap. There's no indwelling Holy Spirit of God in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That comes in Acts chapter 1. There's no Jew and Gentile in one body in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, they were told to stay away from the Gentiles. You see... The basic fundamental problem is, is when you throw your Bible away and you lose your Bible, you lose your, you lose your perspective. And uh, if that wasn't enough, I mean, how could a blind man not see this in Matthew 19? Hey, the crowd coming to Jesus is not interested in Bible instruction. The crowd coming to Jesus is not dealing with a lot of people that are divorced and want to have the truth. The Bible tells you in Matthew chapter 19, they're coming tempting him. This is a setup deal. They're not looking for truth. They're looking to entangle him in their talk. No, for the church, the teaching for the church is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It forms us, for us, the absolute New Testament teaching to the body of Christ, what is to be the Bible format in dealing with the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage under the New Testament style of grace. And it's not the same as the Old Testament. Now, getting somebody to understand that, I, I don't know how to get you to do that. I mean, uh, gee, I would think that when they died in the Old Testament, they went to Abraham's bosom, and they died in the New Testament, you go to heaven. Let me think. Is that a difference? Yeah, I think it is. 
may I add another thing in here? And I don't like to do this, but I think the day and age, and I'm not really talking about you guys. This is a lecture. Think of yourself in a Johnson County Community College. But I think a question that we need to decide today, and I've been thinking about this for quite a while now, years as a matter of fact. I told you I'm born, born in the wrong time. I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this world at all. I'd rather be back there in the old days where you know who was right with God and who didn't. I mean, the many stood for God or they didn't. There was none of this mishy-mashy stuff where you play at both ends against the middle. I, I don't like that. I'm, I'm not good at that. I mean, uh, I mean, I just, you know, I just, I think New York people are the nicest people in the world, greatest people in the world, because you always know where they're at. You go up to somebody in New York, you said, uh, excuse me, could you tell me how to get to the Empire State Building or should I just go drop dead? See, yeah, you got it right there. <laughs> I mean, it's very black and white. I like that. I like that. And, uh, but I think the question we got to ask ourselves today in, in lieu of Christianity, because I'm struggling with this today, is stupidity a spiritual gift? <laughs> no, I don't know why you're laughing at that. I, 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 at one time, I didn't think it was. I am, I'm somewhat confused on it today because I see God's people chasing after stupidity. I see them embracing stupidity as it's a virtue. I see them collecting stupidity in their lives. My mother collected salt and pepper shakers. When you went into her house, she had 9,000 cabinets, and she had salt and pepper shakers. Every place we went, she bought a salt and pepper shaker set. We must have had 50,000 of them. We didn't have eBay back then. We'd all be rich. But she had them everywhere. She had them everywhere. And you walk in people's houses today and they display articles of stupidity everywhere in the house. We got to think about this. It's time to consider this. Is stupidity a spiritual gift? I, I, you know, I know that sounds stupid, but I'm not telling you. I'm, I'm, I, I think I missed something someplace. Now, I want to talk to you, now that we've got a little background in our study, let's talk about and define a few things. So when we get into chapter 7 here next week in these 20 points, we have a very good context. So you want to get all this solidified in your mind today because we're going to hit it hard next week. Now, I want to talk to you about reasons for divorce. I had a seminar a number of years ago that I did on divorce issues. And it was, it was three, I was a panel of four pastors, three other guys and me. And the number one question, obviously, they asked, the place was packed with people. And the number one question they asked is, they asked each pastor in turn, well, what do you think is the reason for divorce? First pastor gave his canned answer. Second pastor gave his canned answer. Little, little sprinklies put in, a little different, but same. Third guy gave his. They had to me and they said, Pastor Alexander, uh, what would your take going to be? What do you think is the real cause for divorce? And I answered, marriage. <laughs> and they all laughed, just like some of you did. Some of you didn't laugh because you heard this six or seven times. I got your name down who didn't laugh. It's not good for you. I want you to know that. But anyway, and that sounds stupid, doesn't it? Sounds funny. But that's the truth. You see, you know why marriages fail, number one? I'll tell you why. Because you get into something that God, people are going to get into something that God ordained. They're going to get into this institution that God set up and structured. They're going to get into an institution called marriage. 
and they're going to completely deny that God had anything to do with it, and then they're going to take something that God designed and God structured, and they're going to try to run it by another set of standards and really scratch their head and wonder what went wrong. Now, that's the fundamental problem. People in the world today, because they have no knowledge of God, they care nothing about God, they care nothing about any of it, they, ask, they, they don't understand that this is the first institution that God set up. Guy said one time, well, you know, you, you've been pastoring for a long time. He says, I've seen you do all kinds of things. He says, i got a question I want to ask you. And I said, what's that? And he says, you do marriages. And I said, more than I can even remember. He says, you do funerals. And I said, more than I can ever remember. He says, can I ask you a question? As a pastor, which do you enjoy doing more? And I said, I enjoy doing funerals. Really? He says, why is that? I says, well, number one, they're more permanent. I've done a lot of marriage ceremonies where they didn't last, but I've never done a funeral that it didn't stick. <laughs> I mean, there's something permanent about that, you see. But the reason for a divorce is marriage. People get into a relationship without God that God designed and God ordained, and then they try to run it some other way that God never intended for it to run, and then they actually wonder why it did not work. We actually think, that, that world's portrayal of history. You know, go out and rent Mel Book's movie, History of the World Part One. You'll get it down very quickly. Man started out as a caveman. He had a big club. He walked down the thing there and there were a lot of women washing their clothes. He picked out a pretty one, whopped her on the head, drug her back by her hair, put her into the cave. She began his wife. After about three or 4,000 years, somebody said, Mm, you know what? We need more sophisticated than that now. I got an idea. Let's call it marriage. Let's get where two men and two women, let's make up a bunch of things that they say and, you know, beautiful things that bond themselves to each other that they present to their world out there and civilized society will now be civilized and will we'll have the act of marriage. No, it didn't happen that way. God decided in Genesis chapter 2 the idea of marriage. He put it in play because of what it represents and what it pictures in the Bible. Trying to get into that institution and then running it by a Sears catalog standard won't work. Problem one, that is your number one problem and reason for divorce is people taking something that is God's institution and then trying to run it another way that God never intended it to run. Now, I'm going to give you two great concepts here in two great verses. First of all, going along with what I just said, if it starts wrong, it's going to end wrong. You can take that to the bank. If your marriage starts wrong, it's going to end wrong. It just happens that way. Unless... I'm not saying you can't get, get it right in between. I'm not saying all of that. I'm talking about in a lecture format here, cause and effect. I know many of you come into this church with terrible marriage situations, some not so bad, some kind of bad, some really bad, and you made it. But you didn't make it because you kept going the same way you were going. You got it done because you stopped and you started looking at it from God's standpoint, and then you did what you needed to do. I'm with you on it. But I'm telling you, when it starts wrong, you're going to have some problems, and in time, if you don't fix them, it's going to end wrong. 
Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Here's, here's the first problem people get into. It says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord, that's togetherness, a concord puts two things, you know, concourse, concord. Uh, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Belial is the Old Testament name for the devil. Or what part hath he that believe with an infidel? Basically what he's saying here, and we always use this for this, and it can, it's okay, that uh, it's it, under no circumstances in the Bible, over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, do you ever, is there any value, any chance, any hope at all in marrying an unsaved person? Now, we have lots of people in my life over the years that both were unsaved when they come in, and they both get saved. Works out great. I understand that. Uh, but I'm telling you, you want, these are the basic cause and effects. These are the basic fundamental reasons why you have to understand these things. And I'll tell you what happens. I've seen this more and more and more. You hook up with somebody, you're not sure they're a Christian, you get no clear definition, you don't grill them through the Word of God, you don't give them the hard-line questions, and you know what happens after a relationship when you get your emotions involved? I'll tell you what, they become a Christian. Somebody sent me a joke with John Busquet. It's a goofy joke, but John tells goofy jokes. <laughs> Part of his charm. I mean, he married Pam, didn't he? I mean, like, how's can I tell you? <laughs> there in Wichita. <laughs> Strike that from the tape. <clears throat> anyway, it went like this. I'm not going to remember the whole thing, and I probably won't tell it. It won't be funny anyhow, but don't worry about it. This guy was a Baptist. And every Friday night when he got home from work, he got a big old sizzling steak on the grill. His neighbor was Catholic. And obviously Catholics eat fish on Friday. And the Catholic was very offended. Went over and talked to the guy. Did nothing. So after, wow, he, on a Friday night, he got his priest to come over. And the priest come over and talked to the guy and explained to the guy. And, and the guy might have been a, a Baptist, but he wasn't much of a Baptist, you know, like most Baptists. And a Catholic in time talked to him about it and said, uh, why don't you let me convert you to Catholicism? And the guy says, well, I don't know. I said, I was, you know, my mom and dad are Baptist. I was born a Baptist. I was raised a Baptist. And I guess I'll always be. He says, you don't have to do that. The guy says, okay. He says, so the priest does what he does. And he says, you were born a Baptist. You were raised a Baptist. Now you're a Catholic. The guy says, thank you very much. <laughs> Next Friday night, guy's out there cooking a big old steak again. <laughs> guy's enraged, calls the priest. Priest comes over. I am remembering this joke. It must be a good one. <clears throat> priest comes over and he says, you can't do this. You're, you're now a Catholic. He says, it's okay. He says, what do you mean it's okay? He says, you're a Catholic now. The guy said, no, I took care of it. What do you mean took care of it? He said, I did the same thing you did. I said, you were born a steak. You are a steak. Poof, you're a Catholic. I mean, you're a piece of fish. <laughs> you're a piece of fish. <laughs> what are you laughing at? That's exactly what you do. They're no more saved than the man in the moon. You want them to be saved. You need them to be saved. God forbid you wouldn't fornicate with an unsaved person. You only fornicate with saved people. <laughs> you need them to be saved. So just like the steak's a piece of fish, poof, my unsaved girlfriend's now saved. That's how it works. We think I'm stupid. Don't answer that. <clears throat> they, they become saved because we need them to become saved. I got values. 
So I, I know that. So you know what? You don't, you don't get into their life. You don't ask any questions. You don't really get down and find out where they're at. You just, poof, you're a Christian. Why? Because I need you to be one. That's why. Now I'll talk about the second thing. Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 67. 19 principles on how to find the right person in your life. Now I know eHarmony.com's got 29 and there's a new one out there now called ChristianMingle.com. I love that one. I mean, this Christian Mingle one's a great one. You see it on TV, and I love it. You know what? This is what you don't do with human nature. You put on about two lovely young people running through the daisies of the field, you know, and, you know, and they're happy, and they're, they're wholesome-looking people. And then you put the guy out of the girl on, and she says, now, are you waiting for God to make the next move? Why don't you make the next move, and then God will move from there or something like that. You know, that's the worst piece of advice you could give human nature. That's exactly what got us into the problems. Not waiting on God to make the first move. And you get impatient with God. And then you get, what? Then what happens? Then you get, what happens after you get impatient with God? Anybody? What happens after you get impatient with God and you don't get what you want? What's the next level? Huh? No, before you get to that point. You get mad at God. Then you do it yourself. Then you go, poof, you're a Christian. God goes, jump and see the Christ. Poof, you're naked. (laughs) The chess game. I know the standard thinking. I'm tired of the bar scene. I'm going to find a partner in church. You fool. The same people that are in the bar scene on Saturday night are in churches on Sunday morning. Go to church is no guarantee. Well, I only marry a saved person. It has to be saved. That means absolutely nothing today. That'll lead to disaster. Genesis chapter 24 shows you, listen to me, it shows you, and people need to understand it, it shows the number one thing you should look for, and if you don't see it, don't even consider it. And I ain't telling you what it is. You don't marry the person, you marry the Christ in the person. And if that Christ is not in there, don't deceive yourself. Ladies, don't settle for somebody you got to have, you got to drag around and train to be your spiritual leader. Guys, don't settle for somebody who won't be pliable to do the things of God. Don't forget the help meet principle in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. This is what you tell them, see? This is what you got to know. You got to understand these things. I'm not preaching this to you. I'm preaching this that you get this because the people you deal with. Listen, the person that people, Christians, hook up with will either help garnish you with the judgment seat of Christ or strip you naked. Finding a help me is not like going through the drive through and ordering a burger. It's a process. There's a lot that rides on it. Remember last Thursday night when you didn't come? We had one of the greatest concepts. Somebody asked a question about Jethro and those things with Moses. Remember one of the things I told you? Last week you saw Jethro taking care of the little things. Uh, Moses. Jethro says, you shouldn't take care of the little things. You got to take care of the big things. And I showed you the principle. And this is the principle here. If God's people in their individual lives and in their relationships would take care of the little things, you'd never get to the big things. But we don't. We don't take care of anything. 
I say it again. If it starts wrong, it'll probably end wrong. Now, I'll tell you the second thing you want to try to get people to see. And you can't really tell them this, but you need to understand this. And this is the hardest thing. This is another great principle. Don't get your emotions involved before you completely, and I mean completely, know where they're at with that book. There is absolutely no future in it. One woman said one time, well, he deceived me. No, sweetheart, you deceived yourself. Bible principles. You knew them. You knew what they were. And what happens is that it always happens. In 35 years, it always happens. It never changes. You'll trade God and the book and what you have with God, and you'll throw it away for a situation to put you right out of God's will. I found a man. I found a woman. You know, I love the Internet. I love Googling things. Now, I grew up, there was a lot of movie stars that I don't know what happened to. I Googled Chuck Connors the other day. He's dead. Rifleman. Johnny Crawford, his little boy. He's still alive. And I, it's amazing. You can just type in anything. I, you know, somebody, I, 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 I mean, this really bothered me the other night. I don't, please don't laugh at this because it was a terrible thing. I'm not meaning it to be funny. It just goes to show the power of the Internet. I got listening on, on the news and somebody talked about killing Obama so loud and everybody whining for him and, and not gi- giving him a decent burial. And, and they made reference to the Internet where you got, you know, what about the people jumping off the World Trade Center on fire? Do they not need to, what, what do you do about that? And I thought about that. And, I, and I, I, I thought, how do you find that? So I typed in, people jumping off the World Trade Center. I got sick. I mean, one fireman talking to another fireman, and you don't see the people following, but you hear them crashing through the glass ceiling. Incredible. Some power there. There's hardly a sermon you don't put together. If you want to know what something is or what it is, you just type it in, and up it comes. You have everything you need. So I, my weekly thing, I typed a bunch of them. I, I like to find out what happened to them. I typed in, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, Bozo the Clown. I thought it was quite incredible. Do you realize what come up on Bozo the Clown? Bozo the Clown is the wrongest running clown in the history of clowns. I think it was 57 years this guy played Bozo the Clown. He's the better, longer than Clarabelle, longer than, you know, Clarabelle, longer than anybody else. Bozo the Clown survived and was a clown for 57, 58, 60 years. I forget what it was. It was an incredible amount of time. You say, now what has that got to do with the message today? It's a great point. Once Bozo the Clown, always Bozo the Clown. Don't think you can marry Bozo the Clown and then change Bozo the Clown later. (laughs) I see you and your wife have had this discussion before, Bob. You meet some gal or some guy, and I don't know how it goes. You know, he has no, he or she has no interest. And I, you know what? You get your emotions involved, and you make some of the stupidest, dumb mistakes. 
You'll say, will you share my life? Well, I don't know I want to share your life. Well, will you share my, we're, we're Christians. Will you share my God? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you share my faith? Well, yeah, I don't really go to church a lot. Will you share my Bible? Well, I don't really read it. Uh, well, what can we share? I'll share your bed. How would that be? And that's how it goes. Well, you think I'm stupid? But we've got to ask ourselves that question. I think stupidity is a spiritual gift. Because God's people are pursuing it all over the place. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. I'll win you Jesus for Victoria's Secret Collection. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, the next section is, this is not pleasant. Oh, <laughs> like the last one was. <clears throat> But I'm going to tell you something. Fundamentally, here it is. Now, I'm going to say this in the light of what you guys got to learn. But you better learn this if you're going to deal with people because things are always not what they appear. I never listen to what people say. I just watch what people do. And some, most of the time, they don't know I'm watching what they do. Because I know you'll put on an act for me. But when you're by yourself or with your friends, then you're who you are. See? That's easy. But let me say something to us guys here, us guys, not you guys, us guys. And like it or not, the failure or success of marriages, 99.999% of the time, will be in your hands and my hands. Notice I didn't say it was going to be all your fault. Listen to me very carefully. I said, it's in your hands. Most things, one of the greatest principles that I've never really taught because it's one of those things that I just use and I don't really put it out there, but it's absolutely true, and now it's time for some of you to get this because of where you're at and what you're dealing with. But gentlemen, do you realize that your wife does not have the ability to fix a bad marriage? You do know that. Your wife does not have the wherewithal nor the ability to fix a bad marriage any more than she has the ability to pastor a church. She can't fix the marriage. The marriage has to be fixed by leadership, and she's not a leader. Or she shouldn't be. Now, believe me, I don't like this anyway more than you do. Don't get mad at me and say, well, I pick it up. Hey, listen, I got to ride home today and hear this thing over and over again. <laughs> no, maybe not today. I love you. Maybe not today. But at some point, at some point, at some point, uh, you, I mean, you think we don't have our knockdown dragouts? Come on. You think we're Wally Cleaver in June here? We can go at well, Wally Cleaver. That was not right. Uh, Ward Cleaver. Yeah, I, know. I knew it had a W in it. We've been married for 38 years. And I got to tell you, we have never, ever, ever, ever talked about divorce. Murder? Seven or eight times. <laughs> My point is simply this. I got to get it just like you. So this isn't old Bob up there climbing on me. No, Bob is going to get it the next time we have a tiff. She's going to say, I know you're coming. Oh, is that what you taught on Sunday morning? <laughs> no, it wasn't. <clears throat> oh, don't look at me like that. I don't like it any more than you. But I'm telling you, a woman can't fix a bad marriage. She can't. God never intended her to. 
she can't fix it anymore than she can fix a church. Now, they can both destroy a marriage and a church, but they don't have the wherewithal to fix it. Don't you know that? Don't you understand that? These, under, these Bible principles and facts are undeniable. Now, I know there's some really wicked women out there. I've never met any. No, I'm telling you, in all my years of ministry, we've got, I've, I've met goofy women, but I've had goofy guys. But I'm telling you, Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7 says and tells you that there's some really, really nasty, wicked women that you want to stay away from. Personally, in my ministry, I've never met any. I, I just haven't. But in most cases, if divorce happened, it's because the man would, listen to me, he would not become the Christ of the Bible. And when that happens, it's the exact same thing. Let me ask you a question. What would happen tomorrow if Jesus and God decided to go work for UPS? And they stopped being God, they stopped being Jesus, they stopped being the mediator between man and God. What would happen to Bible Christianity? I'll tell you what would happen. It would fall apart. And when the man who is designed, Ephesians chapter 5, to be everything to that relationship and be the Christ in that relationship does not step up to the plate, it doesn't have a chance in Hades. And that's why they fall apart. Gentlemen, in contemplating marriage, we are faced with a God-ordained spiritual institution that is built on and rises and falls on the man's walk and relationship with God and how he applies it to his wife. I wish I didn't have to say that this morning. I am digging my own grave. But I'll make it a big hole so you can jump in with me. Now, you want a killer verse? I hate this verse. If I could find this verse was not in an NSV, NIV, I'd take an NIV in this, in this passage. This verse is terrible. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Husbands, love, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now you stop and think about that. That's from the Bible. That's not some marriage handbook. It says, Love your wives and be not bitter against them. You know why a husband has no reason to be bitter against his wife? Now many times they are. And I'm not saying the wife is always perfect and she can really add gasoline to the fire. Don't get it. takes two to tango. Boom, boom, boom. Bum, boom, bum, 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 bum. Takes two. <laughs> but it only takes one to fix it. You know what we used to say in the old days? In the old days when we go out winning people to Christ and talking to people and talking to families, the old boys used to say, tell us young guys, you know what? When you go into a home and you get the mom and the kids saved, you only got half a family. You go into a home and the dad gets saved, you got the whole family. You know why? They understood something that we don't understand today. I don't like it any more than you do. I really don't. But guys, I'll be honest with you. You tell this, and this, you got to know this when you deal with people. We all have a right to be bitter against them. You know why? Because they're exactly what we have led them to be, bar none. You say, well, I didn't know that when I married her. Then that's your fault for not finding out before you married her, or vice versa. You don't, we don't have an excuse we don't have an excuse. 
in ministry. You know what the number one ingredient in ministry is? Above the Bible, above knowing biblical principles. What is the number one ingredient you got to have in ministry to be successful in ministry, leaving the Bible out? Anybody want to raise your hand and tell me? What is it? Well, that's true, but even be above, not above that, but put that out of the equation. That, that you can have that and still blow it. Being willing or available. Are you preaching tonight for sure? <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I hope you do better than that answer you just gave me. <clears throat> what is it? And I know you will. What is it? What is it? Jan? Follow biblical well, that's good, but that's not, that don't do you any good either if you don't have the bottom of the Oh, you got to have it. Well, that's close, but not it. That's okay. You're all right. You're just all wrong. Yeah. Well, wait, no, no. Take the word of God out of it. In ministry. Now, I know you got to know the Bible. I know you got to have attitude of heart. I know you got to have Bible principles. I know you got to have all that stuff. But you can have all that stuff and be an absolute flop if you don't have one thing you got to have in ministry. Yes, ma'am. That's true. That's true. But that's not it. It's a simple thing. It's patience. It's patience. It's patience. You can have the Bible. You can have the Bible principles. You can have everything you need. But when it comes to people, if you don't have patience with people, it, you have nothing. You have nothing. I've had people in my world over the years that took them 5, 10, 15, 20. It sounded like we were playing hide and go seek. 5, 10, 15, 20, 20 by 30, 30 by 40. You know, and they, they, it took them 10, 15 years to get their life right with God and get through that passage and get where they're doing something for the Lord. And then they have somebody else in their life that doesn't come along uh, as fast and they want to be judgmental toward that. Give me a break. Are you sure stupidity is not a spiritual gift? And let me tell you something, in marriage relationships, it takes patience. It takes patience. It takes patience. It takes patience. And then I'll tell you another one, boy. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It tells us as husbands to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. That means the Bible. But then look at this. And then it says, and honoring her and honoring her, and honoring her as the weaker vessel. Do you even know what that means? Do you even know what it means to honor your wife as the weaker vessel? It said, honor her, not belittle her. It said, honor her, not cuss her out. It said, honor her, not abuse her. It said, honor her, not bully her around. It said, honor her, honor her, honor her, not scream at her, honor her, not yell at her, honor her, not make fun of her. Do you and I have a clue of what it means for a husband to honor his wife as a weaker vessel? Well, I'm telling you, you figure it out on your own. But I'm telling you one thing right now. This is the fundamental breakdown. These are the fundamental issues. I don't like it any better than you do. But gentlemen, you and I are faced, and when you start to deal with marital relationships, I know there's problems on both sides. Sometimes women can drive you nuts. I understand that. But I'm telling you what, who gave her the car keys to the bus? I mean, you and I are faced with an overwhelming body of evidence in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, the great chapter on marriage, he gives three verses to the woman and gives nine to the husband. Yeah. 
Again, no woman in the New Testament in the Gospels ever rejected Christ and left him. They surrounded him. They wanted to be with him. They ministered to him. Why? Because he had the character qualities and the godly qualities that all women want and look for in a man when she's doing what's right. And if you ain't figured it out, there's eight of them right in your Gospels. Eight character qualities of what a man ought to be. That when a woman is drawn to it, not repelled from it. Now, unless you're just one of the most wickedest women in all of planet Earth who wants nothing to do with God, I'd say that a major share of my problems lies with me. I'm not telling you what they are. But it's the key to honoring her as the weaker vessel. Now, the next issue is rebounding relationships. I tell young men in learning how to preach, most are not very good. We have a few exceptions when they get on a shot the first time, do pretty good. But most guys, when they begin to preach, they're not very good. I wasn't very good. But they fall under a delusion that they think that if they get, the way to get to be a better preacher is to preach, preach more often. And, of course, that's not true. Giving a bad preacher more opportunities to preach just means he preaches more bad messages. I teach them that you have to analyze every aspect of your preaching. You have to stand in front of a mirror. You have to tape yourself. You have to listen to yourself. Nothing will reveal to you how rotten you sound when you listen to yourself. That's why I don't listen to my tapes. (laughs) Even though it's hard to find good preaching today. It's one of those things where you have to do that. And after a failed marriage, I'm just telling you, people need to analyze every aspect of their relationship process through the Word of God. On marriage like and remarriage, the same way. You don't have a better marriage uh, by just going through the process of getting remarried three or four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. You just keep having more bad ones. And I'll tell you something else. Don't blame your failed marriage on the other person. That's another thing that happens. You'll find people all the time. I just stop them. <clears throat> That's what happens when you hook up with somebody new. You tell about the other person, you know, and then that person thinks, well, you were perfect, couldn't be you. Well, you just need somebody like me because I'm perfect too. And you just tell your side of the story. And then six months after you're married, you find out that it wasn't just all one-sided, you see. I mean, you don't blame your failed marriage on the other person. I mean, they may have been a terrible person. But then I ask yourself again, why didn't you figure that out before you said, I do? I guarantee you in any failed marriage, there's problems on both sides. And sometimes they get real lopsided. Sometimes the woman brings the baggage in. Sometimes the guy brings it in, but it's baggage, nevertheless baggage. I suggest, and I would tell people this, you get the help you need to get it fixed. Fix your issues, whatever you're doing. You, 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 I, I follow a three-point outline. If you've got a problem in your life, and most of us do <clears throat> from time to time, if you've got an issue in your life, I'm going to show you a surefire way to fix that issue. You won't do it, but I'm going to tell you the process. I probably shouldn't even give you this, but I'll go ahead and do it. I just follow, in solving spiritual problems, I just follow three simple plans. And if you do it, then you'll get your problem solved. If you won't do it, then you won't. You know, the first thing I do is I ID, I identify what my real issue is. You say, what's so hard about that? Because none of us want to get honest. Have you ever met an alcoholic that knew he was an alcoholic till he hit skid row, bottom bum? 
all his life when he could have been helped. Well, I'm not an alcoholic. I know when to stop. I can quit anytime I want to. Right. You just don't want to. How many times have people I've dealt with over the years, you know, a uh, husband or, or the wife got a terrible anger problem. And uh, you know what? You couldn't convince they had an anger problem, you know, until it's just on and on. And they blow up at every little thing. And they just, and in them, they don't think they do. You know what? You've got to, first thing you've got to do in solving a problem is you've got to get honest with yourself. And you've got to list down the problems you really have. And I'm telling you right now, you've got to, you've got to identify your issue. And once you get honest with yourself and you identify that issue, then you know what you do the next step? You isolate that issue or issues. You quit solving the problems that you don't need to solve so you can avoid the ones you need to solve. Boy, that's, we're famous for that. Say, how do you know I do that? Because I do it all the time. That's exactly the way human nature is. Don't work on the stuff that's okay so you can keep t- maintain your image. Go after the real issue. Once you identify it, then you isolate it, then you go to work. You know the third thing you do? You annihilate it. You beat it up with every biblical principle there is. You get you a notebook, you start going over that thing three or four or five times a day. You start reminding yourself, you identify your problem, you tell the other person or other people around you, I got this issue when I start to do this, stop me and tell me. You make yourself accountable to the principles of the Word of God, and in time, you will stop that problem. But rebounding relationships is always an issue. Then I'll tell you another one you're going to find a lot. And over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, all of these are are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to go through every one of these as we work through. But we need a foundation today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, it simply says one little phrase, such shall have trouble in the flesh. Well, what an understatement that is. And this one is getting involved in a relationship and marrying somebody with former kids from past relationships. Either one have them or both have them. Let me just say something to you. I'm not saying it can't work, but I think people make the biggest mistake in their life thinking that they go into any marriage on a second round or a third round or whatever, and especially if they got other kids involved from the marriages, and you think it's just like the first time you ever got married. You're a fool. You're a fool. It's tough enough to do it without kids. It's tough enough to do it without any baggage at all of being a former married, adding somebody else's kid to the equation, and you got a potential disaster. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. It's a big mistake. I'll tell you what happens. <clears throat> this is exactly what happens because I've dealt with it for 40 years, and you're going to find yourself faced with it when you start to talk to people. The guy's going to say to himself, well, I'll marry the woman, and I won't marry the kids. They're her kids. Or the guy will say, well, I'll marry the guy, and those are his kids. I'm just going to marry him. That is a recipe for a disaster. Now, let me give you a good piece of advice. Now, if you're already in a scenario like that, well, then there's something you can always do. But if you're not in a scenario like that, let me give you an old piece of war advice. In the Army, we had the down man carry. We all paired up. You all picked a partner, and he simulated a wounded man. And you had to carry him over your shoulder for a half a mile at a run or a fast walk. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist when they said, line up two squads of two lines of two, and uh, we're going to do the wounded man carry. It, it didn't, it did, I didn't have to think twice about my plan of action. 
Anybody tell me what the good course of action is in something like that? Yes, sir, Q? Find somebody that's about your size. Better than that, find the lightest guy out there. <clears throat> in other words, if I gotta run a half mile, I'm gonna run it with the least baggage I can. Am I coming your way? In the race of life, run it with the less baggage you can. That's a good piece of advice. Now, I'm not saying you can't make it work. I've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in my life make it work. But I don't think that most people ever take marriage seriously enough. They don't see these scenarios, and that's why the church at Corinth had their problems and the church of Jesus Christ had their problems. The more baggage you bring in a relationship, the more you've got to carry. It's just that simple. And I suggest that you better have a plan. Somebody would say, well, what would be plan part, part, part of that plan? Be able to walk on water. Because that's what it's going to take. You better have a detailed plan that both of you agree and follow that's based on the biblical principles. And you sit down and lay that thing out, put it to paper, have an understanding of it, and sit down with the family or the kids or whoever and have a meeting to see if it will ever work. Know this. It will be one of the hardest things that you ever do in your life because 24-7. Paul was not just kibitzing when he said, and such shall have trouble in the flesh. He wasn't just adding filler. He's making one of the most profound statements in the Bible that when a person gets divorced and then they decide to remarriage with all the things that people bring into it, you better have a biblical plan. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. I'm not saying you can't work it out, but it will never be like a normal scenario and you will always have the ex and the kids to remind you of it. You know what you got? You got to figure out how that you're not that biological. This is what's tough. You got to figure out how you're not the biological parent. So you got to divide what biologically you can do and what you can't do. Then you got to figure out a plan to be their spiritual parent. And then always keep it separate. That's tough. That's tough. And saying to yourself, I'm not going to do it. We'll see how, as Dr. Phil says, we'll see how that's working for you. It simply is the completely the hardest, roughest thing. But most people get into marriage like they buy a car. Go to the showroom, look it up, kick the tires, take it for a test drive, and then buy it. Yeah. Don't tell me about it, pal. Now these and many more are the issues that are addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You now have a little bit of insight that the cause and the effect. And this has been a, a lecture series. Next week will be a lecture series. We start breaking down 20 principles and showing you the cause and the effect of how they work, the ramifications of where to apply them and how to apply them. Nothing else, understand that this is the teaching to the New Testament church. I'll show you places in here where he cancels out what they said in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and says it's no longer in effect, and then he gives them something new. And I'm saying these are the keys. And uh, the, average, the average person could not find these in the Old Testament anywhere, shape, or form. And I'm not saying, and I want to say this, and you're dealing with people, I'm not saying that all these issues cannot be worked through because they can. You see, the thing I'm going to key on next week, and I'll just give you this and then we'll come back next week. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, 
there was a reason for divorce. Fornication and death. And in the Old Testament, and that's what Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19 are built on because they're still in the Old Testament, according to Hebrews. So in the Old Testament, <clears throat> there are two stipulations for divorce. One was fornication, the other one's death. In the New Testament, in the church, this is where it changes. There's no reason for divorce. There's no stipulations in the New Testament for anybody ever getting a divorce. But there are reasons why people get divorces. And with that concept is where we'll pick it up next week because once you learn the biblical principles, you understand that no matter what state you find yourself in, no matter how bad it may be, I tell people all the time, I don't care what circumstance you're in, maybe it's going to take six months, a year to fix this totally, <clears throat> but I'll tell you what we can do right now that will help this situation a long way, whatever it is. And that is simply stop making bad decisions. Stop making bad choices. You can do that today. You may not be able to fix the long-range things for a while, but there's something that everybody in this room can fix just like that. And that is you get in your mind, you're going to quit making choices that do not line up with that book and you're going to begin to put the principles in. I don't know of a problem that cannot be solved between two Christians. But that's in a perfect world, isn't it? And we do not live in a perfect world. And that's why Christians have problems all the time. But at the end of the day, as far as you're dealing with people, when you find yourself dealing with a situation, <clears throat> you've got to bring them back to the plan of the principles of the Word of God. If you wanted an, an extended aspect of this, <clears throat> A while back, a number of years ago, we did a series called the Marriage Enrichment, which comes through every aspect of not only this, but Genesis and all of the things that you need to deal with. <clears throat> I don't know how many times over the years I've had marriages that were going south, and they come in to see me, and the first thing I did was get them into this and then allowed them to digest it, work back with me. And it does much more than I could ever do in an hour or even throughout this thing. But it's something that you need to arm yourself with and have a set with you that if somebody is struggling, that you can pass those off to them and give them what they need. And Dad will open the door for you to get in there. God wants you to be a prepared servant. He wants you to be his Philip. He wants to put you and train you and to get you into every scenario in that Bible that he can just put you wherever he wants you to be that some person out there in your office or in your school or wherever you're at is really hurting today. And God knows and is comfortable with the fact that tomorrow he's going to take that person in you and he's going to have you cross paths. And he's going to give you the opportunity for that person to throw up all over you and then you're going to have the wherewithal to open up that scripture and help them and give them what they need and they're so desperately looking for Four or five lost generations in Christianity, all because churches would not apply the Bible and do the right thing. We cannot let that happen with the people that we work with. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we thank you and praise you for the